Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Hal Whitman. And we are editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. Aims up Americans think a little more clearly about our public life, rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It's published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're very excited to be joined by Richard Collenberg. Richard is an education and housing researcher and policy consultant, as well as a non-resident scholar at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy. He served as an expert witness for Students for Fair Admissions in its lawsuit against Harvard University and the University of North Carolina regarding those schools' affirmative action policies. For our spring 2023 issue, Richard wrote an essay about the potential for the Supreme Court to curtail racial preferences in college admissions and what should replace them. He urged universities to embrace affirmative action based on socioeconomic disadvantage and geographic considerations rather than racial preferences to produce healthy levels of racial and economic diversity. Doing so would affirm two truths, he wrote, that people should be treated as individuals rather than as members of racial groups, and that good faith efforts to uplift economically disadvantaged students of all races help fulfill another cherished American goal, facilitating social mobility. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Oh, great to be here. Thank you. So yeah, Richard, we wanted to start with obviously the the kind of news item that's that's tied to this conversation, the uh, the case before the Supreme Court. And again, these are the lawsuits against um, Harvard and UNC uh, by this conservative group, Students for Fair Admissions. And I know I already mentioned that uh, you were an expert witness for this group that's bringing these lawsuits. Um, and you mentioned in the piece that, you know, the court will make a decision by the end of June um, and that most people think that the court will either significantly restrict or strike down completely the ability of universities to use race-based affirmative action. Yeah, and so I wanted to start off with, um, you know, why you played this role in the case that you did and also why you think it's it's right for the court to, to strike this down. Um, and I'll just mention a couple of examples you put in your essay um, about the troubling effects of racial preferences at Harvard and UNC. Um, for Harvard, you mentioned that it capped the number of Asian students it accepted. Um, this was sort of to achieve more racial diversity, but clearly a cap on a, a one particular population. Um, and also that uh, this is an interesting stat that 71% of underrepresented minority students admitted to Harvard were from the top socioeconomic fifth of black and Hispanic populations. So not black and Hispanic students from, you know, poor and working class backgrounds, but actually uh, many of, I mean, 71%, much more than the majority um, were from wealthier backgrounds. Um, and then also that both Harvard and UNC um, would admit a lot of mostly white, mostly wealthy children of alumni and faculties, kind of legacy students, you might say. Um, yeah. So again, uh, tell us why you think it, it was right for, or it, it should be right for the court to strike down these things in, in these cases um, and why you think a class-based approach would be, would be better. Right. Well, thanks. Thanks for the question. So uh, my position and what I testified in court is that racial diversity on campus is important. Uh, class diversity on campus is important. Uh, but right now, universities essentially do one thing, but not the other. Mm-hmm. So they say they care about racial and economic diversity, but as the statistics you just mentioned suggest, in fact, uh, they put a lot of focus on race and essentially ignore economic inequality, which I think is an, an enormous um, aspect of, our, of the unfairness in American mm. society today. So uh, to give you the example of Harvard, it is majority minority, which I think is is a beautiful thing. I think it's good to have that racial diversity on campus, but it also has 23 times as many rich students as 
poor students. Wow. Yeah. Right. So they're uh, they've created. Uh, I don't know whether I can say this on a, on an AEI broadcast, but uh, it's it's an uh, it's essentially an aristocracy, uh, uh, a multiracial aristocracy, mm. which is is better than all white aristocracy, mm-hmm. but it's still essentially a self-perpetuating aristocracy. And so I think it would be much fairer to consider the uh, obstacles that, that people have had to overcome in life, the socioeconomic obstacles. And if you do it in a way that's sensitive to our racial history, we'll also reflect the fact that uh, because of discrimination, you know, black people and Hispanic people in America are dis- disproportionately poor. So I think you'll get to the goals of racial and economic diversity without a lot of the divisiveness uh, that comes uh, from from racial preferences. Uh, last thing I'll say is I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Bobby Kennedy liberal. Uh, and so I really believe in trying to bring together people of different races and find common ground. And he, he did that in 1968. But, uh, but you know, we, we've had, we're such a divided country. Mm. And when you tell struggling white people that uh, we're going to prefer the most wealthy uh, black and Hispanic student over you, uh, that just leads to resentment and division. And, and I think we can get to those important goals of racial and economic diversity in a much more constructive way. Universities have been using racial preferences in admissions for uh, about a half century now. And the Supreme Court has you know, upheld some of these policies in a series of, of, of narrow rulings. Um, but a majority of the American public continues to oppose these these measures. And you've also noted in, in your essay and elsewhere that the left hasn't always supported racial preferences. Um, civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. and Bayard Rustin and uh, even Barack Obama and Joe Biden um, all at some point expressed support for affirmative action for disadvantaged people of all races kind of in the vein that, that you discussed. And so I guess how or why, in, in your view, did liberals uh, overreach, is the word you used, um, in, in your piece, and em- embrace uh, racial preferences in university admissions? Yeah, well, well, first of all, let me say I'm, I'm glad you raised uh, Dr. King and, and Barack Obama. I mean, Barack Obama was asked the question, do your kids deserve a preference at admissions? And his answer was no. Mm-hmm. No, they're pretty advantaged. And uh, and that working class people of all races do. And, and Dr. King was, uh, was very strong on this. He wrote a book in the 1960s where he said, uh, we do have to do something to compensate for, you know, pretty terrible history of racial discrimination, segregation, mm-hmm. slavery. Uh, and, and yet he said the best way to do it is to, uh, to make sure that you give a leg up to disadvantaged people of all races. He called for a bill of right for the disadvantaged, not a specific bill of right for black people. Mm. So the question then becomes your question, why? Why, why did we shift uh, <laughs> in this other direction? And and I think there are three reasons that universities have focused on race and, and that a lot of liberals uh, today focus on race rather than class. The first is that race is a lot more visible. Mm. So uh, when you go on a university campus, you can tell immediately whether they lack racial diversity. Uh, you, it's much more difficult to detect whether they lack socioeconomic diversity. So universities prioritize the, the, uh, the racial diversity in part because it's easier, uh, it's easier for people to tell when they're falling short. Uh, the second 
item has to do with constituencies. So uh, civil rights groups, uh, professors, others will push uh, in admissions for uh, underrepresented minority students to be admitted. And, you know, I'm glad they're there uh, making those those cases. There's not a similar group out there that's saying, let's have more low-income and working-class kids of all races. That mm-hmm. doesn't, there's there's no organized constituency for that. In theory, the, the you know, the, the labor movement should be doing that, but they've, they long ago uh, went in for, for racial preferences. Mm-hmm. And the third and most important reason is that it's a lot cheaper to, adri- to deal with uh race diversity than class diversity. Uh, as, as you pointed out, Dan, you know, a place like Harvard is, is tending to admit upper middle class uh, black and Hispanic students, mm-hmm. along with even wealthier white and Asian students. Mm. And so you don't have to provide financial aid. Uh, you can instead spend money on faculty salaries and other things. Well, uh, the, when, you know, once the Supreme Court rules, uh, if we do get a negative decision on race, then universities are likely to shift to economic-based affirmative action, class-based affirmative action, and that's going to be a lot more expensive. Uh, the University of California ish, uh, filed an amicus brief where they complained about the fact that because they couldn't use race in California due to uh, a voter initiative, uh, they had to, they'd spent half a billion dollars uh, on huh. trying to achieve racial diversity by other means. And huh. I thought it was the most telling line in the whole wow. amicus brief because that's what this is about. They're trying to save money. They're trying to get racial diversity on the cheap, and uh, this will be will be more expensive. Yeah, and I think another, and this actually came. Uh, there's a recent New York Times article about you, Richard, and you know you you mentioned that you were a Bobby Kennedy liberal, but that a lot you've gotten a lot of heat from other people on the left, from from you know your fellow kind of liberals because of your stance against race-based affirmative action. You know, some of their charges are that, oh, if you move to this class-based alternative, um, it, there wouldn't be as much diversity. Uh, it would water down academic quality, and it would not sort of give enough weight to things like structural racism, which, as you said, is much more uh, visible and pro- a prominent talking point on the left today. What is your kind of response to that? Like, wh- why do you think that a class-based um, admissions policy would respond to those things and just be better overall? Mm-hmm. Well, you, you can achieve racial diversity using class-based preferences. And we showed that in the uh, simulations, in the litigation. So Peter Arcidiakno, who's a Duke professor, and I looked at the data from several years at Harvard and the University of North Carolina and said, what would happen if instead of providing these large racial preferences and preferences, you know, upper middle class whites through legacy and other, other means, if you, if you didn't do those things and instead provided a leg up to economically disadvantaged students of all races, and in most respects, racial diversity increased. So at Harvard, for example, Hispanic admissions went up. Uh, Asian Americans admissions went up. Uh, white admissions went down. Now, now, black admissions did go down a bit uh, in the Harvard simulation. It went from 14% to 10%. Uh, and, uh, and that's that to me is, 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 is of some concern. Uh, but the key thing to note there is that we did not include uh, wealth as a mm. factor in admissions. So uh, because of our history of slavery and segregation and redlining, the black-white wealth gap, uh, you know, your, your accumulated assets, is much greater than the income gap. Uh, and so if we had had data about the wealth of applicants, which all colleges do, uh, but if Harvard had turned that over, we could have boosted 
the minority, the black percentage further than, than 10%. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. But you're doing it not, not, you know, not only to kind of figure out a way around the Supreme Court, but rather because uh, it's fair to consider whether someone comes from a low wealth background. If they're, if they didn't um, have wealth, that means they can't afford to buy a house in a, you know, in a, in a neighborhood where there's a strong set of public schools. And so it's, it's the fair thing to do and it will boost racial diversity. So, so there are ways to get at structural racism uh, without explicitly using racial preferences and, and, Things like wealth, neighborhood poverty levels will get you uh, the racial diversity that you need. Having, having talked about, uh, yeah, some of the kind of discussions between liberals and some of the liberal critiques that you've you've gotten on this issue, um, yeah, and I'd like to talk about the implications of your argument for conservatives, which I think uh, is very interesting. So, conservatives, as as you note, have long supported race neutral alternatives to racial preferences, and that would include Justices Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas, among others, and conservative lawmakers and governors in Texas, Florida, Nebraska, Arizona, uh, have all enacted programs to increase financial aid and uh, boost consideration of socioeconomic status and geographic diversity as well in admissions. You uh, offer a warning, though, that conservatives could potentially overreach themselves and are by arguing specifically that any admissions policy that promotes racial diversity, even if only indirectly, is unconstitutional. So a, a class-based uh, affirmative action policy, if it had the effect of, of increasing uh, racial diversity, would, would be unconstitutional. So we, uh, we saw this in the lawsuit against Thomas Jefferson High School in Fairfax County, Virginia, a really selective uh, school. And you, you wrote about that, that the, the new attack from the right on policies like TJ's adopts the left's mistake of assuming that all inequalities should be viewed reductively through the lens of race. So why, in your view, is this a dangerous approach for conservatives? Let me be frank. I, I hadn't written for this wonderful publication, National Affairs, before. And one major reason I wanted to write for you all was that I, I think it's important that uh, the conservatives know there is a danger. Mm-hmm. That they can overreach just as liberals have for the last 50 years. Uh, so as you suggest, you know, there's been a long history of conservatives supporting race-neutral alternatives. Uh, they've said... We don't have a problem with racial diversity. It's the means by which uh, universities are are achieving racial diversity that's mm-hmm. problematic, the use of race. And some of my liberal friends have said, well, Rick, you know, you're, you, you're, you're championing this idea and conservatives are just going to turn around and go after that next. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this Thomas Jefferson case is a little bit is a little bit troubling, but I think it would be a huge mistake. First of all, you know, it's, it's kind of a blatant bait and switch uh, that, you know, Conservatives have been saying, use race-neutral alternatives like class. And now, uh, you know, if they were to turn around and then say, well, this doesn't work for us either, it would look look pretty bad. Uh, I think furthermore, it, it misses the fact that uh, the, the attack was never on the 
was never supposed to be on the ends of racial diversity. It was, it was over the means and the difference in means makes a big difference on the ground. So there will be a very different subset of uh, black and Hispanic students who benefit from class-based affirmative action. And it's the kind of people that, that Clarence Thomas and Antonin Scalia and others said did deserve a break. Mm. Uh, those who've, who've overcome odds, who've, who've grown up in difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so I think it's, you know, as kind of as a, as a more matter of moral logic that it makes sense for conservatives to support this. And the final thing has to do with politics. And so Racial preferences were always unpopular. About 74% opposed racial preferences, according to the Pew Research Center. But at the same time, people want racial diversity on campus. They do not want higher education to resegregate. And that's why in Texas, Florida, elsewhere, when you had conservative governors in power, they came up with alternatives, race-neutral alternatives, uh, such as giving a boost to economically disadvantaged students and and admitting students from the top 10% of their high school mm. uh, in the case of Texas, they, they knew that you couldn't just say, well, we don't, we're just going to let the chips fall where they may. They, they knew that there was, di- there were inequalities in society and they had to have an alternative answer. Mm-hmm. And so I think it would be a huge mistake if conservatives then went after this, uh, these race neutral alternatives. Yeah. And Richard wanted to ask another follow-up about conservatives and their kind of approach to affirmative action. I think we typically, when we talk about this idea of like a, a multiracial political coalition of working class people, you tend to think of like the old FDR kind of New Deal coalition that sort of cobbled that together. But it's interesting um, now, you know, since the Trump presidency in particular, there's this talk of, oh, Republicans need to be the workers party. We have more working class voters now. And we could have a separate conversation about, is that actually happening? How would that happen? But you know, for, for Republicans and conservatives to support this, for supporting a race-neutral class-based affirmative action policy that would benefit working-class people of all races, is this a sort of policy that if Republicans back this, they could actually help, you know, fulfill this prophecy of becoming a workers' party? What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think it's a fascinating question because I've come at it from a different angle. As I said, I, I, I'm a student of Bobby Kennedy's, and he, he did bring together a working-class coalition mm-hmm. on the Democratic side in 1968. But there are some signs uh, of Republicans making inroads, especially with Hispanic working class people. And obviously, uh, Trump had huge margins among working class whites. And so I think that's a reason for conservatives to want to back class-based affirmative action, mm-hmm. because then they can uh, show that they, they understand that, that people have, have overcome obstacles. You mentioned the, the New York Times piece that, in which uh, they, they profiled my work, and I, I got a a lot of emails and, uh, and notices from people who said, you know, thank you. There were some who said they were actually tearful because they said no one paid attention to us. Hmm. Uh, that, uh, that is to say working class people were getting a raw deal in this country and, and yet elite universities and, um, and large corporations hadn't paid attention to them. So I think there's, there's a lot of political gain for whichever party em- embraces this. Uh, and I think that it would be an incredibly healthy thing if Democrats and Republicans started competing for working class people of all races yeah. to find yeah. out who, who could do a better job. And this would be a great policy to start with. You know, we, we believe strongly that, that working class kids deserve a shot at the American dream. And we're going to 
we're going to count the fact that they've overcome obstacles in into effect. And I'd love to see each party say, you know, no, we're going to do more on this issue. And and uh, I think that'd be a great thing for the country. Yeah. I mean, that, that sounds like a, a constructive debate to have as opposed to some of the debates we have today. Yeah. And actually, Richard, I was just thinking of a final question kind of prompted by what you were saying earlier about how this would be costly for universities to mm-hmm. uh, have a more class-based policy for admissions. A couple of things that kind of to ask if the Supreme Court does strike down racial preferences, will schools still try to find ways to do that, but just by another name or try some other way to evade it, but still have race-based policies? And then the second question, like, can they afford this? I mean, it, there's on, on the right anyways, we're always talking about, oh, they have these endowments and they have all this tuition money coming in and they sort of pretend like they don't have a lot of money, but they do. I mean, do you think universities, universities can't afford a more class-based admissions policy? Yeah. Well, I think on your first question, we'll, basically, will some of these universities cheat mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and continue to use race? Uh, I think there's a possibility of that happening, uh, uh, but there will be litigation in those cases. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it would be stupid for them to, <laughs> to do so, mm-hmm. uh, especially given that there are alternatives out there that can get them to the mm-hmm. goal of racial diversity by other means. Uh, the question of cost is a, is a really significant one, and I think it depends on the university. Mm-hmm. So some universities are enormously wealthy and can very easily uh, make adjustments and bring in more students who are economically disadvantaged. And I also think, you know, for universities as a whole, this will be a great fundraising opportunity. Mm-hmm. It is popular to help uh, disadvantaged kids who've overcome odds get a chance to uh to show their true colors at a, at a selective college and then go on to go do great things. That's the American dream. People like that, that narrative. That's one of the things they hated about race-based affirmative action was that mm. that wasn't what was what the policy was about. Mm. So I think there are fundraising opportunities. But I also think, uh, finally, that the, the government will need to step up. Uh, mm. That happened in, in Texas and Florida. They both, when they moved away from race-based preferences to race-neutral alternatives, both legislatures and uh, and sets of governors endorsed greater financial aid. So they had the Longhorn scholarships in Texas and some other scholarships in Florida. So uh, in order to prevent resegregation of higher education, uh, I think universities will have to do their part and uh, state and, and federal governments will also need to uh, provide more resources to make this make this real. Yeah, I, w- I wonder that the expectation is obviously that the Supreme Court will overturn racial admissions and, and strike these down as, as unconstitutional. Is there anything else that people should be looking out for in these decisions or kind of implications for college admissions uh, that people should pay attention to as this decision comes down the pike? I think the key question that remains open is, at this point, is how broad will the decision be? How, mm. how broad will the Supreme Court go? Mm. Uh, both in terms of you know, how strongly will they stamp out the use of race and also whether they uh, indicate that this decision uh, will ultimately apply to other types of uh, cases beyond just college admissions. Mm -hmm. So most directly would be the question of financial aid. Mm -hmm. So right now, a lot of financial aid programs uh, have a racial component to it, you know, that they're, they're, uh, they count race in deciding who gets the who gets the scholarship, mm. and will that also uh, become illegal? That's that's another question. So there, uh, this this Supreme Court decision will, will not end uh, the discussion, uh, but I think it will. 
ironically move us in a, in some ways, in a progressive direction. That is to say, we'll we'll begin to pay attention to kind of one of America's great unspeakable issues, which is class inequality. And mm. uh, I think that you could have a situation where in the first wave, we saw affirmative action based on race. In a second wave, we saw uh, universities go co-ed and open the doors to women. Mm-hmm. And we may finally see uh, meaningful numbers of working class people and low income people of all races having access to these selective colleges. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I assume, Richard, you would support a class-based approach to the financial aid question as well. I assume, or I don't want to put words in your mouth, but yes. kind of a similar approach to the admissions. Okay, gotcha. Yes, that, and, that, and that cuts uh, yeah. it cuts against both uh, race-based mm-hmm. scholarships, mm-hmm. but also against uh, non-need merit scholarships. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think uh, you know a lot of universities try to improve their U.S. News and World rankings by mm-hmm. getting kids with high SAT scores who don't frankly need the money. And I think that's, I think that's troubling as well. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, Richard, uh, this is a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think there's a lot for both liberals and conservatives to kind of sink their teeth into and think about here. So that's, it was fascinating. Thank you for, for joining us. Oh, I enjoyed it so much. Thank Thank you. you. Of course. Um, If you'd like to read Richard's essay or other articles, national affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of national affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. You can find more episodes of our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.